Oh, you're right. We're surviving all this. It's crazy stuff. I thought, I thought my lockdown hair was getting bad till I saw John Major on television this morning, and uh, wow, you know, not bad. And he's he's ten years older than me. This is where you say, and he looks it. <laughs> We're back in in John's Gospel. Uh, in the series we do uh, every sort of you sort of break off to do another part of a series and then come back to it. I, I guess the reasoning behind that, I've never, never asked Andy, is so that you don't get totally sort of up to there with any one subject before, before we move on. And we're in John chapter 7, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses. And after I do that, I'll explain a little bit about the context, and we'll decide where we go from there. Uh, it's John chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> after this... Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. When Andy asked me to preach in this passage, I read it and thought, lovely. Really? So I you know, prayed and I read it a few times through and, read and began to realize a little bit what was going on here. After the initial excitement of the early days, early months of Jesus' ministry, when crowds and crowds and crowds had followed him, 5,000 people had been fed with just a few loaves and some fish, and uh, all the excitement was there, miracles were being done. And then had come that bit just before our reading where Jesus was teaching the crowds and he began to say things they didn't like. He began to offend them. He told them that unless they ate his body and drank his blood, they could have no part in him. And you can imagine these people who so far have been going, wow, ooh, oh, food, great. Uh, up until that point, everything had been simple. All of a sudden, this was, this was becoming a bit heavy. And the Bible tells us that from that point on, a great number of people deserted him. Uh, didn't follow him anymore. The, the 12 remained following him and a number of others as well, but that kind of mass popularity movement had, had subsided considerably. Uh, and this is the, the context we find ourselves in here. The Feast of Tabernacles was approaching. I always smile with the word tabernacle. Uh, 
for those of you who don't know, I was brought up in the Salvation Army. Uh, that was my first Christian experience. And in, in a Salvation Army call, there was a lovely, lovely retired brigadier, a lady. And uh, she stood up to pray one day, and she said, Oh, Lord, thank you for tabernacling among us. You have tabernacled before, and we know you will tabernacle again. By this time, all the young people were absolutely on the floor in hysterics, and all the young adults, yes, I was once, all the young adults were sort of going, because it just sounded so crazy. And of course, all it means is a tent, camping with us, basically. The word tabernacle is a word for tent. And uh, the, the sort of sacred tabernacle of the Jewish people before the temple was built was the, temp the, the tent that represented the presence of God. So God tabernacling with us had this idea of his presence with us all the time. But it was lost on, on young people who thought it was just a crazy, crazy word. But the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrimage feasts which the Jewish people observed. There were other feasts too. The pilgrimage feasts were essentially the Passover when they remembered uh, the time when God got the children of Israel out of Egypt and the blood of the lamb being smeared on the doorposts and that sort of miraculous deliverance. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost, which was a kind of first fruits feast, which they celebrated. And this was the third one, uh, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, also known as uh, ingathering. It had associations with harvest time, but its main thrust was simply this. They remembered when the people of Israel had to travel across the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land. And of course, in doing that, they lived in tents. They lived in tabernacles. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And every year, when, when the feast came, loads of people would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, carrying their tents with them. And they'd put their tents out all the way, all around, around Jerusalem, every sort of corner you could get, to remember, to try to collectively remember as a people that time when they had nothing and they were so dependent upon God. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. Well, not quite. That's what the basic thrust was. If you want to know what it's all about, ask Andy some other time. <laughs> so there were loads of people. Still setting the context, we're introduced here to Jesus' brothers. Right, that's interesting. Jesus had brothers? Well, yes. Um, according to the Bible, you'll see it in Matthew 13 and in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, uh, there are four brothers of Jesus identified, James, uh, Joseph, who was also called Joseph, Judas, sometimes called Jude, and Simon. And those four are identified as brothers of Jesus. It also mentions he had sisters. Now, our, our Catholic friends they choose to believe that Mary remained a virgin all her life. And so they choose to believe that these must, be, must have been children of Joseph's by a previous marriage, or were cousins of Jesus, and in the context of the day, you often called your cousin, brother, or, or sister, which is actually quite true. Hmm. The problem with that, however, is that in Matthew 1, verse 24, it, it makes it clear that uh, Mary, uh, sorry, Joseph had no sexual union with Mary until after Jesus was born. But it does strongly imply that he did have sexual union with her after Jesus was born, because that was the whole point of saying it. I don't want to offend anybody, but the obvious reading of the passage is that these were Jesus' half-brothers, and that uh, Jesus alone was a sort of a, a virgin birth. Uh, the Almighty God was his, his father in that sense, but these were 
children born later to Mary and Joseph. Hmm. So having set the scene, let's try and work out where on earth we go with all that. What's going on? And I want to identify three different groups of people. I want to identify the, uh, the cynics and the haters and the whisperers. And, and as I do so, it wouldn't be a bad idea if you could try to think of what, just get in your brain what this would have been like had they had social media around in those days. Just think about it. If they'd had the equivalent of Twitter, maybe Twister, or Instagram, Instagram, and, and two Facebook. Um, you know, if those things had been around then, this story would have been mind-blowing anyway. Let's think of the cynics. In this case, the cynics are, are Jesus' brothers. I've got a brother. He's lovely. He's three and a half years older than me. And for me, very sadly, isn't preaching these days. And he's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. But he doesn't get the opportunities. Uh, lovely, lovely guy. If you'd asked me what I thought of him when I was eight years old, I wouldn't have been quite as effusive. Oh, I don't defend it against anybody. Uh, you may think, hang on, you were the younger one. Well, yeah, it worked that way sometimes with, with my brother. He, you know, he, 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 he's got model trains. Loves his model trains. He can, he can fix almost anything. You know? And because he was older than me, I thought I was useless at anything practical, so I went out and played football instead. Totally different. We didn't always support each other the way we should have done. We were occasionally, just occasionally, unkind in the words we used towards one another. I'm just looking around to see if anybody here who has brothers or sisters knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. So if you could imagine these brothers of Jesus uh, and the attention being on Jesus, people, you know, after Jesus' baptism, people flocking to him and, and miracles being done, and they go, well, what's, what's, this? what's going on here? And that's the kind of picture I have in my mind. At this stage, they were clearly cynical about Jesus. You need to do your miracles in, in Jerusalem. If you want to be a public figure, if you really want to get well-known, if you've really got this great mission, you need to be where the action is. Jerusalem's the center of activity as far as we're concerned. What are you still doing here in Galilee anyway? Anybody can hover around in Galilee creating a bit of a fuss. You go to Jerusalem and do your stuff. Hmm. Public figures don't hide. That's true, isn't it? Can you imagine election time, you know, and you're canvassing for, for people's votes? Well, I'm, I'm not going to bother because, you know. They had a point from their perspective. And although they would have seen some of the miracles, the Bible says they didn't believe. They didn't believe in him. I wonder how Jesus felt about that. I wonder, I wonder how, how he was in himself when they were saying, go on, Jesus, you know, you've got to choose them, do your stuff. And he's saying, well, you know, the world's not going to hate you, it's going to hate me. <laughs> in my own time, thank you. Cynicism's still around. It's, it's not just, you know, the sibling thing. There's lots of cynicism around. In fact... Uh, interestingly, one of the uh, previous executives of the BBC is, is now he's retired, of course, has launched this quite a remarkable attack on the BBC, telling them that they're Christophobic, that they're quite cynical about anything remotely serious. 
with regard to Christianity, and I think there's some truth in that. I was fascinated to see, I always get this wrong, John Centignahu, the former Bishop of Durham, talking about uh, Prince Philip this morning on television, talking about uh, how they used to talk about his faith and how Prince Philip prayed for him when he was having problems with him. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is on television, you know? And, and Andrew Marr, you could see him going, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of waiting for this bit to get over so we could talk about the more important things. The cynics are still around. If it's not directly about Jesus and what he did, it's about you know, the Bible, you can't really believe that, can you? You, know, you believe that God created the world, science has disproved it. What about that story of Noah and the flood? That's ridiculous, isn't it? And, and as for Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, you know, come on. What is fascinating, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that in the New Testament, the three particular stories that Jesus affirms as being historically accurate, Jesus affirms them, are creation, the flood, and Jonah. Fascinating. The cynics are there, and they were, they were there as he hung on the cross, and people shouted out, he saved others, he can't save himself, ha ha. And we're surrounded by them. Oh, most of it's good-natured, most of it is a bit of banter, some of it is just designed to, to prod, to poke, to hurt, to damage. And I've never quite worked out the logic of cynicism. I can work out the logic of opposition, of saying I have looked at this and it's not part of me, uh, and I'll try and persuade you otherwise, but cynicism is always a negative thing. It's always something which seeks to destroy belief in anything. That's the nature of a cynic. Then you've got the haters. Jewish leaders, the, the, most of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they hated Jesus by this stage. It says at the beginning of our reading, they, they were looking for a way to kill him. That's a bit extreme, you know. I'm glad we don't have religious, well, glad we don't have Christian leaders like that at the moment who are looking for ways to kill people. They were out to get him. Why? Well, Jesus had wooed the crowds. Jesus had had this huge popular following, which admittedly was beginning to diminish now, but they didn't realize that properly. They knew that Jesus was a huge danger to them and their power base. They had been the ones who had had the influence over people. They had been the ones who, if they said something, that people listened whether they liked it or not. They had been the ones who were able to manipulate the, the ordinary faithful to do what they wanted. They were the top dogs. And then Jesus came along. Jesus questioned their authority. And he himself spoke as one who had authority. Jesus scorned their hypocrisy. He told them that they were children of their father, the devil, because he was a liar and so were they. That's nice, isn't it? And they hated him. He was a real threat to their control, a real threat to their influence. The seeds of murderous thoughts were germinating. How can we get him? And you can imagine, is he here? Where is he? Is he coming? Is he coming to this feast? Imagine the old mobile phones, you know. Have you seen him? No, I haven't seen him. Yeah. Keep an eye out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I've seen somebody. No, no, sorry, false alarm. It would all be going on, except it, it would have been by word of mouth. I, I, I've been reading quite a few historical novels uh, during, during lockdown. And it always fascinates me that it seems to me that in medieval days, 
the ability to get messages out was almost as quick as now we've got mobile phones. Not quite, obviously, but within a couple of days of almost anything, the whole country could know about it because of the network of messengers that they had in the country at the time. Oh, word would get out all right. So there's the, the cynics, there's the haters, and then there are the whisperers. I love this bit. love this bit. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man, he's a good man. Others said, deceiver, fraud, he manipulates people. Now, can you imagine what the old social media would be doing with that? I'll tell you exactly what social media would do with that. It would go, he's a good man. Somebody else says, don't be a unpleasantly said fool. So that person would be unfriended because you only talk to the people who agree with you on social media. And the other group would do the same thing. That person disagrees with me, they're out, I'm only going to talk to the people who agree with me. And therein is the curse of social media by and large. It's, it's actually reinforced everybody in the, their own views and their inability to converse with anybody else who disagrees with them. It's astonishing that that's what's happened. Can you imagine? But I'm wondering why the whispers. And the Bible tells us why the whispers. He's a good man. He's a good man. Yeah, yeah, you agree? Good man, good man. He's a fraud. He's a fraud. He's a deceiver, deceiver. You can't trust him. Can't trust him. But nobody was actually shouting it. Nobody's actually saying it loudly. They were just talking to their small groups of friends and being very cautious because they were terrified of the Jewish leaders. They were terrified that they'd say something out of place and they too would get labeled the way Jesus was labeled. Now, are you still with me? You still, you still, have you lost the will to live yet? Okay, so you've got the cynics. Yeah, right. You've got the haters. We're going to get him. And you've got the whisperers. Really? What is he? You think? I don't know. And what does Jesus do? He didn't dance to the tune of others. He didn't try to keep his brothers happy by saying, okay, I'll come, don't worry guys, it's okay, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. He went to Jerusalem in his own time, when he wanted to, when he knew it was right. And as Christian believers, we too are not required to dance to anybody else's tune. Now, sadly, because of my age, I realize some of you are too young to remember, but Billy Graham was the master of dealing uh, with people who wanted him to dance to their tune. If you look at any of the old interviews on television with Billy Graham, where they were trying to catch him out, trying to make him say things he didn't want to say, I never once saw him miss his opportunity. And he would always just respond with, well, the Bible says, and he'd quote a verse of the Bible. Always right. For us, we get worried by the cynics. We, we get concerned because people are so uh, dismissive of what we believe. We, we get perhaps even more concerned by the haters, and there are some out there today who would seek to destroy the church. And uh, you may say, what, even in this country? Yes, even this country. I mean, in the world we know there are more people in prison for their faith now than there have ever been, and more Christians have died for their faith since the beginning of the 20th century than died in all the centuries before. Those things are just, just plain facts. But it's getting more difficult here as well. There are haters, those who would seek to destroy the church. 
and boy are the whispers. Everywhere, really, what do you think? People who aren't prepared to believe anything and aren't prepared to nail their colors to any mast, but love the old chitter chatter, chitter chatter, chitter gossip, gossip sort of machine. And through it all, we would follow the way of Jesus. Basically, Jesus told the truth, regardless. Basically, Jesus did things his father's way. Basically, he ignored the cynicism. He confronted the hatred head on. And he walked amongst the gossip, unconcerned about what was flying around. What a great ability that must be, don't you think? So where am I going with this? Well, I, I want us to finish by focusing on what about these cynics and these haters and these whisperers? What do we do with them? What's, why are they here and what would have happened to them afterwards? And here we have some fascinating insights. Let's start with the cynics, his brothers. Well, we know that at least two of them became Christians. At least two of them became followers of Jesus Christ. At least two of them, at some stage, we never let into the, into the picture of how it came about, came to believe fully in their half-brother as the Messiah and Savior of the world. One of them was James, and he became the leader in the church in Jerusalem after Jesus went back to heaven. Wow, wrote a book of the Bible. Another one was Jude, who wrote another book of the Bible. What happened to the others, I don't know, but it's just fascinating that... Guess what? Cynics can become believers. Did you know that? I, I, I get weary of Christians saying to me, talking about someone, you know, it's just as if they're a natural Christian. All they need to do is believe because it, it's so obvious they're going to become a Christian. That's not the way it works, folks. I mean, it can do, but William Booth used to say, go for souls and go for the worst. Very often, in my experience, it's the ones who are most antagonistic to the truth of the Christian message who are closest to responding to it. Malcolm Muggeridge was a, a blast from the past. He, he became a devout Catholic, having been a total atheist, a television character. He used to argue black was white, white was black, he knew all the tricks of the trade, and so on. And he had a conversion experience where he met with Jesus Christ, and everything changed for him. And he, he became an advocate of the Christian gospel. Even in those days, television didn't know what to do with him. Lee Strobel was a fairly hard-bitten critical journalist, legal journalist, uh, who, uh, whose wife became a Christian. He was so furious and irritated by it, he, he set out to prove that it was nonsense, and in doing so became a Christian. Great book called The Case for Christ, and it's been made into a really good, good film if you want to watch it. There are, over the years, there are enormous number of people who've moved from cynicism to faith. And if that's you, if you're a cynic today, be careful. Because God loves you. And God is at work. And Jesus died for you. And he's not going to let you stay in your cynicism without a real struggle from your point of view. What about the haters? Well, the haters eventually took their hatred to the extreme. And they crucified Jesus. They ridiculed him and mocked him, scourged him, crucified him. Though not all of them. If you remember, Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, one of the Jewish leaders. He'd, step, he'd begun to step back before this, and he was the one who helped Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' body. 
in that tomb. He, he came clean as a Christian. And then there have been other haters. Do you remember Paul, our soul as he was in, in the New Testament? Boy, was he a hater of Christianity. He actually got you know, legal equipment to, to tour the area, imprisoning and putting on trial Christians because they were so blasphemously obnoxious in Paul's view. He was a real, real zealot. On his way to Damascus, and then wallop, bang, Jesus, why are you persecuting me? And a man's life was totally turned around. He became the greatest Christian apologist of all time, wrote huge swathes of the New Testament. He was an absolute hater of Christ. And it still happens. It still happens today. There are, I haven't got time to go into it all, but there are many, many examples of those who had a passionate hatred of anything Christian who are now serving him. Isn't that exciting? Am I the only one who begins to get a stir here somewhere that thinks, just look what God can do. Look what the grace of God is. Look what the love of Jesus Christ is when it, it reaches wide. And to those who would be cynical about him and those who would hate him, he says, come to me. Come to me. Because the blood I shed that we've just remembered was blood I shed for you every bit as much as for anybody else. What about the whisperers? They're still at it, the whisperers. I've met many of them who've been coming to church for years. Sorry, I don't mean this one, all right? Just been in Christian ministry for a long time. Been coming to church for years, and you never can quite work out what they believe, but they don't often enjoy gossiping about what's going on, and chatter, 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 chatter. It's almost as if they, they kind of enjoy the... And have missed the big picture completely. But God gets hold of them as well, and I have no doubts that not that long afterwards, after Jesus had died and they came to that first uh, Pentecost celebration afterwards when the Holy Spirit came in great power and 3,000 people that day became followers of Jesus Christ, I have no doubt that some of those whispers would have been in that crowd responding to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, there's a problem with the Christian faith. I'm always fascinated that Jesus didn't chase after people. He didn't pander to his brothers to say, yeah, 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 I'll do it your way. He didn't sort of come to the haters and say, well, let's find a compromise. He didn't even bother spending time with the whisperers if he knew that's what they were about. But Jesus said this in, in Matthew's gospel. This is why he didn't do things other people's way. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. They are, for me, some of the most sobering words in the New, in the New Testament. A broad way to destruction, many. The narrow way, few. And of course, Jesus said, when responding to Thomas about uh, heaven and uh, what happened afterwards, uh, after death, he said to Thomas, I am the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody, absolutely nobody, comes to the Father except through me. And this is one reason why there are still haters around, because people don't like the message of Christianity. They don't like to hear that actually we're not all going to be all right in the end. That there is a judgment day to come and there are consequences. But this is the great news. That what we've just represented here in, in the bread and wine, uh, the cross of Jesus, as Jesus hung and bled and died on that cross, he took on himself every sin you have and will ever commit and every sin I have and will ever commit. And he paid the requirement of judgment in my place and in your place. So when we say the gate is narrow, we don't mean you're not good enough. None of us are. That's the point. But because of what Jesus has done, he has opened that gate and he says, listen, this is the way in. You humble yourself, you repent of doing things your way, and you put your trust in me, and I am that gate into life. And guess what? It's open still to, to unusual people like me, uh, unusual in, in many ways, that not least that as a youngster, as a teenager and everything, I was a desperate introvert. But unusual because I was brought up in the Christian home, became a Christian in my own right because of personal faith at the age of nine, and have never in my life come to a point where I have seriously doubted the truth of the Christian message. Yeah. So it's, it's for me that Jesus died. But he also died for the cynics who read it and say, oh, you can't believe that. Does any intelligent person still believe that? Yeah, the door's open. And for the haters, those who would actually like, like St. Paul, seek to destroy the church. Humble yourself, turn from your own way, trust in Jesus. And the whisperers, well, to be honest, if the whisperers really want to know the truth, they'll find it in Jesus. It's for everybody. For everybody. That's the joy of it. it. It isn't about me chalking up enough brownie points to get to heaven or, or Duke of Edinburgh gold medal award points to get to heaven. It's not, it's not about that. It's about recognizing that Jesus has done this for me. And there's no other way. Trusting him and then saying, God, would you help me live for you? In all my frailty, I never deserve what you've given me, but would you help me live for you? If uh, God's spoken to you in any way through that this morning, I'd love to have a chat with you or talk to Andy, whatever. But you know, keep looking at Jesus. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. And I think we're going to sing an old hymn, which I remember when I was growing up, sorry, I, think, I don't know if you think all five verses. All, all five verses. I just wish we could sing it together. Because if we could, your voice would be totally worn out by the end. Great, though. Great. Let's pray. Father.
thank you that some things don't change. And as Jesus faced the cynics and the haters and the whispers, so do we. But thank you that the grace you have expressed in your son Jesus Christ is enough for all of us, for them too. And I simply pray that you would tune our hearts into you, that we would move from cynicism, turn from hatred, and learn to focus on the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.